certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Leather gloves found near Jane Rimmer's body were sent to be tested for blood. It's the very first time this item has been mentioned in court. Hi everyone, welcome to week 11 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo joining you in the studio with forensic scientist Brendan Chapman and on the phone from court, Tim Clark. So Tim, these leather gloves came from out of the blue. Yes, they did, Matt. Um, this was in the context of uh, items that were sent to um, Pathwest for testing uh, over the years uh, relating to all the, all the incidents and uh, a list that was received by um, Alex Bogdanovicius back in the day was uh, shown in court uh, today. And uh, looking at that list, there was one, uh, well, there was a couple of items that, that stood out, but uh, th- this was the one that stood out the furthest, I have to say, because we hadn't really heard about it before. Um, these were a pair of leather gloves that were apparently found in a waterway quite close to where Jane's body was discovered in 1996. There was a drainage ditch basically running uh, alongside and then behind um, the area where Jane's body was discovered. Um, And we think that those gloves might have been found in there. We don't know when, but it was certainly very soon after because they were all contained in a batch of exhibits that were then sent to Pathwest straight away, which included also included the, uh, the knife, the Telstra uh, issue knife that we heard so much about earlier in the trial, but these gloves were included. And obviously, in a murder scene like this, when you find a pair of gloves, it would, it would have been absolutely at the top of the list of priorities, I would have said, for the, for the uh, police to try and see whether there was anything on them, particularly blood. And that was what they, they were specifically sent to Path West to have a look for. And did you find out any information about um, any results that came from the testing of the gloves? No, we didn't as yet. Um, the, these were the, this was the list that was sent with the exhibits for them to be received by Pathwest. But uh, as to all the results of the, that testing um, and whether anything came of it, we didn't hear today, and we're not we're not sure we're going to because, of course, this has only been raised now and it certainly hasn't been raised in the context of Mr Edwards or any connection between him and these gloves. But it, it is another one of these things that we didn't know that was important to the police at the time, but we're finding out more and more of all, all every single one of these hundreds and thousands of leads that they followed over the journey. But you would imagine that at the time they would have thought that was very significant. Mm. Brendan, let's say um, any pair of gloves were found or, or left in water for 55 days. What would be the chances of finding anything, be it blood or anything else, on those gloves? It's hard to say, Nat, but um, you would potentially be able to identify DNA or, or cellular material from the wearer, um, given that they, they probably have a, a quite a, a, I suppose, a high load of DNA from where, from, from where. Um, blood, it, it, it's really difficult. Um, 
depends on the makeup of the glove as to whether blood would retain or soak in. Um, leather, perhaps it, it might soak into the glove, um, but really it's, it's anyone's guess. So water doesn't necessarily, I mean, if something's soaking in water for months, it doesn't necessarily wash away DNA. No, not, not necessarily. Um, it can. Um, but in a situ or in a in an exhibit shape like a glove, there will be areas that are, I suppose, somewhat protected. They're going to get wet, um, but it's not to say that uh, it's not like it's going through a tumble tumble uh, washing machine sort of cycle. Um, and in fact, we've even done we like we've we've published articles on clothing that has gone through um, washing machines, for instance, and still retained. Uh, cellular material after a number of cycles so um, it is possible it's just one of those things where uh, a negative result doesn't mean it wasn't originally there um, but a positive result is not necessarily uh, impossible. Tim you'd have to speculate that um, given uh, we haven't heard about this from the prosecution that I guess maybe nothing was found. Well, indeed, Nat, I'm, I'm sure if there, if there was a significant find on it one way or the other, we would have heard about it by now. Um, so, yes, you would have to assume, deduce, but um, even if this testing was done and the results were, were kept, there is and, and was absolutely no link um, to Mr Edwards uh, because it hasn't been raised in that context um, at all. But, uh, yeah, one of those things which I, I, I would imagine when, when the police found those way back in the day they would have they would have been really hoping that that would, that that would have been a major a major clue and a, a major lead for them. And quite likely ended up being a major disappointment <laughs> yeah. we, we expect. Uh, what other items was Mr Bagdonovicius uh, cross-examined about today? Well, a few actually, Nat. Um, one of the main ones was a branch that was found uh, on top of Jane's body when she was found in situ. As we've discussed previously, when she was found, she was partially covered. Her body was partially covered by local vegetation, vegetation that police believed had been taken from nearby and placed over her as some sort of crude um, cover uh, to, to try and uh, um, hide whatever had, had happened to her. And these branches, as we've heard, they all became part of the, the mass of forensic material that was collected at the time, both under on, on top of Jane's body and underneath. And there were two items in particular that Mr. Bagdonovicius was questioned about today. They got the labels RH21 and 22. 21 and, tw and 22 were, they were twigs basically, just not, not um, palm fronds or anything like that. They were, they were literally were branches, sticks, twigs. And in particular, Mr. Bagdonovicius was questioned about these because in his opening remarks 11 weeks ago now, 11 sitting weeks ago now, Mr. Jovic highlighted that it was one of these RH21 that when it was tested later on was found to have been contaminated by the DNA of a victim of a completely unrelated case. And this is one of the four or five examples that Mr. Jovic is going to use as exemplar of what he says were sloppy practices at Path West, which could have led to Mr. Um, Edwards' DNA being found on Kira's fingernails. So he was asked in quite 
specific detail how he how he had what his role was, and he said it was as, as a supervisor to the examination of these branches, this vegetation, who the examiners were, and they turned out to be female Pathwest scientists because there was a fear that if there was any contamination and if it was male, it might really get in the way of any investigation. Uh, and he was asked how long it took to do this because it was there were a lot we saw photos of these branches and there were a lot of them they were small they were big they were small they were uh, there was there was a lot to go through there forensically and it said it would have taken him or them possibly up to a week just to test this this, this one bag of branches get the dna swabs off them and then send them off for testing so that was uh, that was of interest and he was also asked about um, some other items later on in 2003 when he was um, when he was tasked to compile this priority list of all the exhibits um, that had been collected over the years um, and and then he was uh, he was grilled on that towards the end of the day so was there any clarity at all as to who this other uh, victim's DNA belonged to or any indication as to how it could have got there? Not as yet, Matt, but we, I do think we will get to that. Whether we get to that through this witness, Mr Bagdonovicius, or others, we're not sure. But um, it, it was, Mr Jovic was certainly edging towards that by asking all the relevant questions about how, how it was handled, what the procedures were, what the protection clothing was, was worn, um, whether Mr. Bagdonovicius himself had handled those branches, and he said he hadn't. He was quite adamant about that, that it was the female staff members because of that contamination risk that were tasked with it, and he was just overseeing it. But he did say that he was in the vicinity of those branches when they were, uh, when they were gone through. Brendan, I think in a previous podcast we talked about how many um, cross-contamination items would would happen across the country in, an, in a guesstimate, and it was around sort of the 2% mark, one of the witnesses said. So in terms of, the, of contamination of these sorts of things, can you just talk to us again about the ways that that could happen, whether it be primary contamination or secondary transfer? Yeah, sure. There's... Um there's a whole range of uh, ways that foreign DNA, I suppose, can uh, end up on an exhibit. Um, they're not all nefarious. Um, in some cases, it's incidental. Um, I suppose if we if we talk about the the lifespan of an exhibit, it starts at a crime scene, and so they can become contaminated with um, something at a scene. Now, that could be a police officer attending a scene. It could be an ambulance officer, for instance, uh, going to attend to injuries. It could actually also be um, someone living in the house that has also come into contact with an item. So that's kind of where it all starts. Um, thereafter, you've got a whole range of other vectors, I suppose, or, or tr transmission methods where DNA can can contaminate an exhibit um, for instance while we try and utilize disposable items as often as possible throughout the whole procedure from crime scene to a lab sometimes you just can't do that we have pieces of equipment for instance that we take into crime scenes that are you know very expensive um, and we have to you know clean those um, and reuse them 
uh, with, from one scene to another. So then you've got opportunity there for, for DNA to be transferred on equipment, in vehicles, on clothing, um, and that's before an exhibit even gets to the lab. And then when you're in the lab, you've got opportunities for uh, other exhibits that have been analysed in the same area or in the same bench, and that might there might be a week or two weeks difference between those, um, or, or a couple of minutes. Um, utensils within a laboratory, um, and then further down the line, once we start to undergo PCR, this, this amplification process where we copy up DNA, we're then creating um, millions and millions of tiny molecules of DNA that, uh, depending on uh, your processes in the laboratory, can be very easily transmitted around. So the short answer is there's a huge number of ways that it can happen, um, but those primary vectors or those primary transfer opportunities are just me, for instance, into a sample or cross-contamination where we mix a sample incorrectly into another sample. For instance, we have two tubes open at the same time or um, errors like that. But we mitigate against those sort of things by having rules that we rules and procedures and policies that we work to whereby no two samples are open at the same time um, or an area where an exhibit is analysed is must be cleaned afterwards. Um, we also even try and, where, where possible, uh, separate samples that we believe are going to have a, a lot of DNA or a lot of cells. So, so samples with things like blood, we know will have lots and lots of DNA compared to something which has just been contacted, we know we'll have less. So we try and even separate those sorts of things. And then the final major separation we make is separating our uh, people samples from our crime scene samples. So where an exhibit has been taken from a suspect or, or a witness, uh, one of those buckle swabs or a mouth swab, um, they are, we, 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 we always try and, and most laboratories will distinctly separate those into a separate lab from the exhibits where the crime scene stuff is analysed. Considering how many ways that contamination can happen, the fact that it is um, such a low percentage is extraordinary, really. I mean, it suggests that by and far practices are very, very tight. Yeah, I've been in a number of uh, forensic labs throughout the country and Australian practices um, in DNA labs are top notch. Um, Tim, I know the defence is honing in on um, you know this contamination and, and that it potentially happened within the lab. And mm. today, Mr. Jovic um, was asking this question again as uh, you know who who had access, who could get into this lab. Yes, and he even went so far as to ask Mr. Bagdonovich to draw a map uh, <laughs> of the the layout of the lab himself, a little thumbnail sketch on a piece of A4 paper that was handed up to him um, which it, it was to test Mr Bagdonovich's memory as much as anything I, I think but the layout of the lab was then described as the DNA part of the laboratory was on one side of the corridor and the item examination area was on the other side of the corridor and in theory never the twain should meet uh, to, because obviously as Brenner's pointed out to us many times the work in the dna lab 
by its very nature meant that there was a lot of DNA flying around in there. Uh, although we're, we're told it doesn't fly around, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, and whereas on, in the item examination unit, you've got physical exhibits and, uh, you know, stuff from the outside world, basically. So they tried to keep them separate. And you're right, um, Mr. Jovic at one point did ask Mr. Bagdonovicius when all this was being explained and about the, the security and who was let in and who was let out and, and how and uh, who was supposed to uh, accompany who to what parts of the lab. He did ask, again, whether there was any outside tradespeople allowed into the lab to do any work. And this alluded to the line of questioning uh, several weeks ago now, where it was hinted possibly that uh, some work may have been done on the phones in that in that laboratory. And we all know that by now that Mr. Edwards was a Telstra worker of many years long standing. Mr. Bagdonovich has said, it was really tight. So if, even if a, a light bulb needed changing, they had to go to security to get them to change it. The cleaners were the same cleaners that were used in the mortuary downstairs. So they were very well aware of all the um, needs for that, that particular setting. Uh, you know, it wasn't just a hire a handyman type of uh, cleaning arrangement. It was just, you know very specific tasks done by specific people in the hospital but again it, it gives a hint of where Mr. Jovic might be heading with, uh, with, with this question again uh, that there might be uh, just a suggestion of, of somehow Mr. Edwards or one of his colleagues possibly getting access to that lab at some point. It's interesting whether he would be able to take that questioning any further or if there's any um, you know, records of the comings and goings in a more detailed sense. Indeed, it's, it's hard to tell whether he's fishing there or whether he has some knowledge um, that he's trying to get out of witnesses as we go along. Um, it'll be very interesting come the day if he does <laughs> have that knowledge when he reveals it or if he reveals it. You mentioned earlier about the um, testing in 2003 of the nails and I understand today um, the reason that that retesting was ordered was because of um, something discovered in a taxi. Yeah, this was also very interesting, something we hadn't heard before. As I mentioned earlier and in previous podcasts, Mr Bagdonovich in 2003 was asked by the police to draw up a list, a priority list of all the exhibits that they had on the macro investigation involving Sarah and Jane and Kira and to um, prioritise them, basically. The, the police wanted to know what they had, what testing had been done, and then together they were going to put their heads together and say, well, what can, what do we think we can do? And top of that list, so Mr. Bagdonovich said he made 10 of these lists, and priority one was all of Kira's fingernails, which we've discussed ad infinitum, AJM 40 to 50, which included the swab, but at the end of that list, we found out today there were two other fingernail samples, EC12 and 13, which had, at some stage, we don't know when, um, uh, in some contexts, we don't know what, were found inside a taxi in Perth somewhere. And these nails were had become uh, exhibits, possible evidence, and what police wanted Pathways to do was to retest all Kira's fingernails to see if there were any cross matches, any likely um, leads going from one way to the other. And so that is where the 
low copy number testing that Path West did, which we discussed previously, which they were unaccredited to do, but thought they may be able to do anyway to give the um, police some new leads. That was why that testing was ordered at that time, because they had these two fingernail samples uh, from an outside source, and they wanted to, to see if there was anything they could match, particularly with Kira's nails. Again, this leaves so many unanswered questions. Who did those nails belong to? Why were they there? Why were they being cross-referenced? Mm. Um, and it could very well be another one of these questions where we're left hanging and not yeah. knowing where it's going to go. Yeah, well, so on the list that Mr Bagdonovich had made back in August and then November 2003, the results from the testing of those, those mystery nails were actually on the list. Um, for the first one, it said that it was a female, but it wasn't Sarah, Jane, or Kira. And the second one, it was a male, but they didn't have anyone to bring it back to. So they'd done the testing. They'd hit a brick wall to say, well, none of these nails are actually belong to any of the three victims. And that male nail, who knows who that belongs to? Um, I don't think anyone knows and will probably never will. But mm. it would be interesting to know how they came about them and why they were so interested in them, so interested that they went to Path West and said, can you retest all Kira's nails again, which was not um, a, a small undertaking. Um, very interesting. And, and Brendan, Tim's just mentioning the LCN testing there, which at the time the lab wasn't accredited to do, as he said. So why does a lab have to be accredited or why should it have been accredited at the time? It's it's a um, technique or it's a, uh, a process that we, we refer to as validation. And what it means is when we, in any laboratory actually, whether it's a pathology lab doing blood tests or a, DNA, a forensic DNA lab, what it means is that we've tested this technique and we know the limitations um, and we are well aware of the scope for how it works. So we, we can, we do, uh, it, it has to go through a whole bunch of testing to, to make sure that if we put the same thing in on different days, we get the same result. If we put in uh, uh, what are the limit of how much we can put in to get a result. And that's across any, any uh, kind of clinical test as well. Um, and by accredited, what that means is it means that the laboratory has undergone that process of validating it and knowing the, the limitations of the test. If a lab's not accredited to do something, it doesn't mean they can't do it. It just means that they haven't undertaken those checks and balances, um, which in a forensic environment means that we can't produce something to the, to the uh, validity or robustness that the, the court requires. Um, and can you maybe recap for us the difference between the low copy number testing as opposed to the normal testing that was being done? Yeah, so low copy number testing uh, in forensics it, ref it basically refers to that, that process of PCR where we are amplifying up DNA, we're making copies of it. Um, and if you remember a few weeks ago when I talked about that process, I, I kind of compared it to the photocopier where you have a, a, a sheet of paper um, and you feed it into the photocopier and every time you feed it in, you get two copies out the other end. 
and then you take those two copies and you put those into the feeder and you get four copies and so on and so forth. Now, normal or routine testing, we do that process of cycling in and out of the photocopying machine around about 28 times. Um, and we, so we generate, you can imagine, a huge amount of, of DNA from a small amount of starting material. LCN analysis doesn't change anything other than the fact that after 28 cycles, we're pulling out that ream now and feeding it back in again and again and again, up to around about, say, 35 cycles of PCR. Now, so what, everyone might ask, um, and the, the thing is, just like a photocopier, where you're putting in a piece of paper and you're photocopying a photocopy and you're photocopying a photocopy of a photocopy, the more times you do that, the harder it is to read the sheet of paper. And so our conventional testing, we know that after 28 cycles, we still have uh, a, a clear view of what, what the picture is or what, what the text is on the page. Where the, the, the controversialness, I suppose, about LCN testing comes in is where we start to lose sight of, of some of those letters on the page. So, and that equates to how we can interpret the DNA as well. It's less predictable uh, in how we observe it. Um, we know using conventional testing with a large amount of uh, starting material that if we have half of one person's cellular material and half of another person's and we put it in to test it, our results show that we get about half as half of signal from person one, half of signal from person two. With LCN testing, some of those kind of rules start to get a little fuzzy. And so we can start to see over-representation of one person over another. So our end result might show that there's a huge amount of signal for uh, a particular fragment of DNA, but that might not be, uh, might not actually reflect what was there in the beginning. So it doesn't change the result. The result is still an answer uh, that, that of what was there. It's just that it starts to get a little more, um, I suppose, speculative in how we can interpret it. So does that require a level of training, the ability to be able to read the result? The result is there. It's whether you are able to analyse it and read it correctly. The results, the results are the same as a conventional test. So we, we get the same visual display. It's the understanding of what that means when you've used a technique that you're less familiar with and it hasn't gone through that, that validation process where we know the limitations. Um, so laboratories that are specifically set up to, to do LCN testing and have validated it, to use that word again, um, have imposed a new bunch of rules around how they test them. So one of, one of the kind of golden rules around doing LCN analysis is that all results must be replicated at least twice, uh, if not more. So that means you have to put a sample in one end of the pipeline and get a result out the other end and get that exact same thing done a second time as well and get the same result. So these are just some of the, the nuances to doing LCN testing, which is why laboratories that are set up to do it 
are the ones that do it. You also have factors like because you are copying up more more of that underlying DNA, you really need to have probably a higher stringency of um, laboratory procedures, routine cleaning um, and protective equipment of, on, on people working in that lab that you could be a little more lax with in doing conventional analysis. Um, so, yeah, that's why LCN labs are LCN labs. And that's why places like the FSS did it, because they've done it. They, they know the limitations and they've, they're set up to, to do that. Yeah. Honestly, you can see why this is called forensic science, can't you? It is just so minute and so detailed. Um, Tim, Mr. Jovich um, was being a bit forensic when he was asking um, uh, Mr. Bogdanovicius about the documents and, you know, exactly how he sort of signed it or had a little signature to show that it was his. What was the purpose of all of that? Uh, well, it was, uh, yeah, very detailed, not very exacting. And it, it, once again, it was to trying to get to the heart of what Mr. Bogdanovich's practices were and what he said they were and whether the two uh, did match up. He was asked today about labelling, whether, whether a, a, a lost label on a bottle or a swab could be uh, could be overcome uh, at one point Mr. Bogdanovich says yes it could be overcome by a plastic band and just put uh, two swab two, to put two swabs together on using the one label uh, there was uh, items regarding um, the way he wrote things uh, the way he noted things the way he recorded things or if he didn't record things and at one point he was taken to the register of the exhibits, particularly um, relating to Kira. And he had placed asterisks next to the ones that he either wanted to be sent to DNA or for DNA testing, or whether they had in fact been sent to DNA testing. And it was at this point that Mr. Jovic honed in on an asterisk that was placed in the wrong column where, in fact, it was placed on an intimate swab where Mr. Bogdanovich said it, it or put the asterisk next to a T-shirt or Kira's shirt. And he was taken through that for quite a while and asked some quite pointed questions about that could be uh, that two-centimetre gap between where the asterisk should have been and where it was could have been a major vital mistake because it could lead to uh, issues of well this t-shirt has been sent to DNA testing but it's not there anymore where is it and a lot of hours could have been spent possibly um, trying to fix that very apparently simple and minor mistake so that was the level of detail we were going to he was also asked about when he was putting together this matrix some quite pointed questions about did you rush it were you under pressure to rush it? And he quite candidly admitted, yes, I probably did rush it a little bit because we heard last week that in the first draft there were quite a few errors in it. Uh, Mr. Bogdanovich hasn't finished his cross-examination yet. He'll be back in the morning and I would not be surprised if we go to similar areas again before he's uh, finally uh, released from his uh, 
his part in this trial. Yeah, I mean, well, given the case that he was working on, um, you would expect that you would be feeling a degree of pressure to come up with, you know, answers as fast as you could while still obviously taking the greatest of care. Brendan, we have a question for you from Roger who says, from what they have, is it possible to determine what type of cell the DNA originated from on each exhibit? I.e., can you tell, besides sperm cells, whether a sample is male or female and how? So, yes, we can tell the difference between um, uh, whether DNA is male or female, um, and we do that by looking at areas on uh, the, chromos the chromosomes specific for males and females. So females have two X chromosomes, males have an X and a Y, and um, we look at markers on um, those chromosomes in order to identify male and female. So that's an easy one. The other part of the question about identifying what cell type um, DNA originates from is uh, is is kind of we're really on the cusp of that now in research. We're starting to see um, experimental um, tests where we can identify whether, uh, for instance, uh, cells derived from uh, blood, for instance, are derived from uh, cir circulatory blood or compared to menstrual blood, for instance. Um, so the answer to the question is, is no, but we're almost there. Yeah. <laughs> Um, Brendan, Alison Van Hurt keeps saying that the level of detail is just so extraordinary in terms of the forensics that are being discussed and that anyone who is a forensic student should be getting into that courtroom as quick as they can. Have you got students um, going in there or uh, lining up to go in and, and listen in? I have had a couple that have, that have popped in um, and I'm, I'm trying to take some in this week before... Um, the semester gets really busy next week and, and university comes back. So I'm hoping to make an appearance this week and with a, with a bunch of eager uh, master's students, actually. So we'll, be, we'll keep an eye out for you, Tim. Oh, I'll keep an eye out for you as well. But, uh, <laughs> make sure they all have their phones turned off. <laughs> yeah. You don't want Very them getting in trouble. <laughs> Well, thank you both for your expertise today. Email us your questions to claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au and we'll be back tomorrow with Tim and Alison Fan for day 47 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. Enjoying this podcast? If the story behind the headline matters to you, then you can count on thewest.com.au to deliver. For more on Claremont the trial, follow the live blog, watch the nightly news updates, and sign up for daily email updates at thewest.com.au. Subscribe now for just a dollar a day at thewest.com.au.